0: Let's look at Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, and I want to preach to you the testimony of a resurrected man. Galatians chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 20 as our text this morning, <clears throat> where Paul speaks. Really, hes uh, I, I get into it here in a little bit, uh, but he is helping the Galatians, the believers in that region, to understand what Christ has done for us and the finality of what Christ has done for us. And he comes to this testimony, really, that he's using himself to illustrate what Christ has done. And this is what he says in Galatians 2 and verse 20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the word together, we thank you for this wonderful word that you've given us. Something that we can hang on to, that we can hold to a hope that serves as an anchor for our soul. I pray that you'd help us that we would understand what you're saying here and how it relates to us in our lives, and that we would rejoice in you and all that you've given us and all that you've done for us, that you would be our satisfaction, our life, our joy, our crown, our exceeding great reward. I pray, Lord, that as we open the word together, that all of us would have ears to hear what the scriptures say that we would make any changes in our lives that ought to be made based on what your word says, that we would believe on you and that we would also live this resurrected life described here in this chapter. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There could not be a more precious saying in all of scripture than the saying at the end of this verse, our text. The very last part of the verse where Paul speaks of Jesus and says that he loved me and gave himself for me. It seems to me that of all the things that we can hold to in the word of God, if, if I can say this, that he loved me and gave himself for me, if I can say that, then I have everything. I have everything that a man could ever want because what could be better than that right there? What a thrilling truth. No, long, no wonder it seems what Paul is saying here in this verse. It seems that he is overwhelmed by the truth of it. That he comes to this in awe and wonder that he who is the greatest, the fairest of 10,000, the greatest of all people. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the very son of God, very God, a very God that he would love me and give himself for me. We might think that Paul has become a little self-focused in this verse. You see the number of times he uses the word I or me in one verse here. People might want to accuse him of being a little Self-centered in this. He uses the word I or me eight times in one verse. Most people would say, well, that sounds a little conceited, a little me focused, a little self-centered right there. But his triumph, of course, we see this. His triumph has nothing to do with his own merit or with his own accomplishments Really nothing to do with himself other than that. Paul sees himself as the recipient of the greatest, richest treasure given to him freely, not deserved by him, not earned by him, not merited by him. But given to him by the grace of God who loved him and gave himself for him everything Paul points out here is what Christ has done to him and for him I am crucified he says that's not something we would typically brag about and and of course in this day and age maybe there's a little more honor to being crucified every year at this time of year on Good Friday uh, there are people around the world who will voluntarily be crucified. But that only shows the glory of the cross and the fact that people think that there's something really good that happened there. I assure you, when Jesus Christ was crucified, nobody was volunteering for it. Nobody was saying, yes, crucify me too. I want to be crucified. In fact, Peter, the, the church historians tell us that Peter, when it came time to die and the Romans were going to crucify him, that he was so... Afraid of anything that would resemble what Christ did, that he insisted that they crucify him upside down because he did not wish for his death to in any way compare to the death of Jesus Christ. But we know that there was a great reproach in the cross. So when Paul said, I am crucified, this was not a way to commend yourself to the people of that day or to the Galatians in that day. I am crucified, he said. That's the same as saying that I'm scum. I am despised. I am rejected. I am the offscouring of all things. It's the same as if Paul would say that when he said, I am crucified. He says, I live. But immediately, he follows that up. By the way, it's amazing. He says, I am crucified. Nevertheless, I live. Crucifixion was death. He said, I'm dead. Yet, I am alive. I live. But he immediately follows that up by saying, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. But notice that last little bit of the verse again. Who loved me and gave himself for me. We could preach a whole sermon on that phrase alone. What an amazing truth. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God, should die for me. Whoever heard of such a thing? And all the heathenness, all the pagan idolatry in our world, it is never among all the gods of this world, it is never the God who dies for the man. It is always the man who dies for the God. In every religion outside of the Christian faith, the people are expected to give themselves for the god but in the christian faith god gave himself for us he loved me he gave himself for me <clears throat> this is the glory of the gospel that jesus loved me and gave himself for me if jesus is your savior if you are resting in him and him alone for your salvation, then you also can say what Paul says here. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. This phrase gave himself those two little words gave himself carry a whole lot of freight with them. There's a whole lot of meaning behind those two words because when Jesus gave himself, it was not just a superficial offering. It was not just like Valentine's, you know, with a cheap husband who couldn't figure out a card to get or a, a flower to get. And so he wrote his wife a note and said, You can have me for Valentine's Day. Like she was thinking. Yeah, because I didn't already, right? I didn't already have you, right? <clears throat> no, that gave himself means more than he just that he gave away what he had or gave out of the wealth of his treasures and gave it to you in handfuls. No, it doesn't mean that because the Bible says that he gave himself and there can only be one meaning when the Bible says that he gave himself only one thing that that could possibly point to. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ, when he gave himself himself gave himself to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross, to writhe in agony on that cross throughout the day, to suffer and bleed and die and go to the grave and be risen again from the grave. When Jesus gave himself for you, he gave himself by means of the cross and the tomb, and the resurrection, and the ascension. He did all of that. He suffered, and bled, and died on the cross for you, for sinners. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus died and rose again so that I might live. Jesus died by His death he demonstrated his love for me. But God commendeth. That means that he recommends it. He, he sets it forward. He sets his love forward. God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. See all the other religions in the world. Will require you. Will demand of you. That you reform first. And then maybe God will accept you if you go far enough towards getting your life straightened out. Then maybe, just maybe, you know, if you cross all your T's and dot all your I's and get everything straightened out just right. Then maybe, just maybe, that God will look at you and be pleased and say, "Okay, I can let him in now. You can be part of my club, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't wait for you to reform your ways or to change your ways or to be changed in any way. He doesn't do that. No, the Bible tells us that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. This is this is again the glory of the gospel that God, Jesus Christ, did not die, love Paul and give himself for Paul Because Paul was worthy of it. Because Paul was especially good. Paul himself will tell you. He was not especially good. In fact, Paul refers to himself in his life. Before he received Jesus Christ. He calls himself chiefest of sinners. And Paul, in fact, lived throughout his life. After he had received Christ as Savior. He lived with the shame of and disgrace of what he had done. He could never get over, I don't believe, the sorrow and shame because of the sins he had committed. And yet he could say that he loved me and gave himself for me. By this love, Jesus has drawn me into his life so that he now lives through me. And that is the resurrection life of the believer. Now, Paul sets before us here a description, the testimony, if you will, of the man who is risen with Christ. He is dead, yet he lives. His life is intertwined with the life of Jesus Christ. He is in Christ and Christ is in him, living through him. He, his life depends on the life that Christ lives. And he is fully identified with Jesus Christ. He is not just called a Christian, but he is in Christ and Christ is in him. I want to point out then four things about the resurrected man that we can get from this testimony of a resurrected man. I want you to see his history, his identity, his principles, and his value. We begin with his history. Paul said, I am crucified. So the history of this resurrected man is that he is a crucified man. See what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ, that when Jesus Christ was bleeding and dying, writhing in pain and agony on that cross, Paul said, I am crucified with him. The death of Jesus Christ was the death of me. This is the only way in for a sinner. This is the only way in. And this is the reason why so many sinners refuse to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They will have Jesus Christ. They will have his treasures, but they will not be crucified. They will not be crucified. Now, of course, we're not speaking of and we won't have a lineup of crosses out in the yard for anyone who wants to become a Christian after we're finished here. But what I mean by this is that there are many sinners who would love for Jesus to take their sins away And love to be absolved of their sins by Jesus. But they will not give up their life to follow Jesus. They will not. And this is what Jesus said. He told us that we must forsake father and mother and wife and brother and sister. And even our own life also. And he said, if we will not, we cannot be his disciple. Romans chapter 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. this is a principle in the Bible, that we must take that old life lived for self, that old life that is full of doing whatever I want to do without regard for what God wants, If I just happen to be doing something that is good and that God is pleased with. Well, that's just as good. But if what I want to do goes against what God says in His word, I don't really care because I want to do it. And that's the way people live. And that's exactly what must be nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. The man of sin, the body of sin must be destroyed. And the only way is to be crucified with Jesus Christ. This crucifixion with Christ then is not just a theoretical thing. It's not literal in the sense that we won't be lining up crosses out in the yard for people to be nailed to. But it is not theoretical either. We're not saying that this is just something that just kind of happens. But this is a matter of saying... That I'm going, if you seek to save your life, the Bible says that you will lose it. That's what Jesus said. But he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. So the testimony of a resurrected man is, first of all, that he is a crucified man. You cannot be risen from the dead unless first the old man is crucified with Christ. When we take Jesus as our Savior, we identify with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. The body is then considered to be dead to sin, but alive to God, so that no more will I live by the principle of I do what I want to do. But from this day forward, I say that what God says, I do. And what God forbids, I don't do and what I I determine what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do on the basis of what God says in his word and not just what pleases me, but what pleases him. And that's the way we die with Christ. We die to self. We die to sin. We die to the world. We no longer live according to the values of this world, but we live according to the values of. That God has given us. Our old identity, the way that we saw ourselves in the past, goes away. The old man is crucified and a new man emerges from that grave. Paul uses the perfect tense here when he says, I am crucified. Now, the perfect tense means that this is something that is already accomplished, fully accomplished, completed in the past, and that continues in full force. In this present moment. So when Paul said. I am crucified. He is saying that this happened. In my life. I can tell you when it happened. For Paul on the Damascus road. When he had a face to face encounter. With Jesus Christ. And Jesus said Paul Paul. Saul Saul I'm sorry. Because his name was Saul back then. Saul Saul why persecutest thou me. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul surrendered To the Lord. Who he had persecuted. Gave his life over. To Jesus Christ. Stopped persecuting Christians. Stopped. Trying to please. And appease. The religious authorities. Who were also the murderers. Of Jesus Christ. Stopped doing that. And identified. With Jesus Christ, though it cost him dearly and eventually his life, his own people hated him, stoned him, rioted, cried out for his blood, took death packs against him. He did that because he saw Jesus Christ. And decided, determined, resolved, however you say it. He he gave his life over to Christ to follow him. His history is wrapped up in the history of Jesus Christ. And so there was a new condition for Saul, who became Paul. Saul, the old self-righteous Pharisee, died with Jesus. Jesus. And Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, came forth out of the grave. See, that's, that's the history of the resurrected man. Jesus died, so this man dies. The old self-righteous Pharisee Saul depended on law-keeping as a way to find acceptance with God. But that law-keeping kept Saul from living a Christ-centered life. He couldn't give God his unreserved devotion because he was too anxious about crossing off all the boxes on his list that he needed to do in his mind what he needed to do in order to please and appease God. This is the way people approach God today. This is the way people have approached God really throughout history, but it certainly is the way we see people approaching God now. Like there's this checklist of good deeds that I've got to do, or, you know, I've got to, I've got to um, counteract all the bad things I've done by doing these good things right here. And when I, when I get enough of them, you know, God's going to... I talk to people all the time. and They tell me this. I say, well, I, I feel like, I really hope at least... That when I stand before God, that there will be enough good things that I did, that God will be okay with me. That's that's law keeping. That's what Paul said. This is this is the way people are trying to approach God, and it is fruitless. It's fruitless here. Now, some of this comes from chapter two, Galatians chapter two. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul opens with two stories from his own life here. When Paul was preaching among the Gentiles, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and as he was preaching, there began to be accusations because for Jewish believers, followers of Jesus Christ, What Paul was preaching was really not the gospel, because for them, and and you have to understand throughout the Old Testament, the way to come to God was by becoming a Jew. Everything was mediated through Israel. And so there was this. After Jesus died and rose again, the Jewish believers still thought that everything came through Israel. But when Paul is preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, he's not telling them that they need to become Jews. And in fact, he is resisting all the the push, all the pressure for Gentile converts to convert to Judaism. And so Paul begins by telling the story Two big events in his ministry. The first came from a visit to Jerusalem when Paul met with Peter, James, and John to discuss the gospel he was preaching to the Gentiles. The big question was, should Gentile converts be required to take on Jewish identity? Were they expected to submit, in other words, to Jewish dietary laws and to the Mosaic Customs, the Mosaic system. Paul thought it was a big deal because if so, then the gospel is mediated through the Jewish nation and not through Christ, and no man comes to the Father through Jesus Christ either. Now, Paul in this chapter describes the way this meeting went and concludes that the apostles recognized that the gospel had the power to bring a Gentile into the kingdom without any go between, no intermediate steps. They didn't have to go, in other words, it wasn't mediated through Israel. It was mediated through Jesus Christ alone, and through Christ alone, they could come to God the Father and be reconciled to him then Paul points out a challenge to this conclusion. And the challenge came when Peter came to visit in Antioch. Because when he came, Peter joined the Gentiles at the table. Now, in our culture, I don't know if we can really grasp um, the way this was uh, in that time. Because we'll eat with anybody. If they've got food and they say it's free, we'll eat it. Right. We're lined up with our plate and our fork and our knife and we're ready to go right now. All right. But in that day, table fellowship, hospitality was not something you offered to just anyone. And so Peter comes to Antioch and Peter sits down to eat with Gentiles. He should have. He was right to do that. God had specifically taught Peter about this in Joppa. Now, My wife and I got to go to Joppa and stand outside the home of Simon the Tanner, right on the seashore. I don't know. You can't be absolutely certain about any of these locations, but definitely maybe it was the home of Simon the Tanner. And Peter sat on that roof and... God put him in a trance and lowered down to him sheets of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, and told him to kill and eat, and taught Peter that. And then Peter received a request from um, and now all of a sudden my Cornelius. And he traveled to Caesarea and he visited with Cornelius, and he led him to Christ. And very clearly, God made it very abundantly clear that Cornelius was the first Gentile convert to Christianity. So Peter was already prepared for this. He knew that the Gentiles were not to be treated as unclean. Gentile converts were not to be treated as unclean. So when he came to Antioch, he sat down and ate freely with the Gentile converts. In other words... Peter treated them as if the gospel had brought them immediately into the kingdom as full members. But then, as Paul tells it, some from the circumcision party came from Jerusalem. And they believed that the gospel had to be mediated through the Mosaic system. And when they came, Peter got nervous. They're going to see me eating with these Gentiles and they're going to think that I have turned my back on Israel, that I've rejected Israel with, can I say it this way? All of Israel's prejudices. And so Peter began to shrink away, to back away from the Gentiles, not to eat with them. He, he s- slowly subtly moved his plate and his fork and his napkin and his cup with Kool-Aid over to the Jew table and sat with them. And Paul saw this as a threat to the gospel that was preached to the Gentiles. And so he openly rebuked Peter for it. And Paul rehearsed these events to explain Why and how he could set aside the mosaic system and join the Gentiles at the dinner table. He said it this way in Galatians 2 verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now this word justified, justification is a legal term here that declares you not guilty. It is an official declaration that you are not guilty and it's not a legal fiction. You are guilty, you have sinned, but just by means of justification, God says you're not guilty, not because you didn't do it, but because your sin was placed on Jesus Christ, was removed from you, and in fact, the the righteousness of Jesus Christ was given to you, placed on you, and God then declares you not only not guilty, but declares you righteous because Christ's righteousness is placed on you. Now this is the plan of, That God has made for us to be saved. For sinners to be saved. And this justification which is pronounced on the sinner. The sinner pronounced not guilty. The sinner pronounced in fact righteous. This is given to you by faith. You receive it by faith. I like the description of faith that. Really is the part of you, that spiritual part of you that God designed to receive the gift. So God gives you this gift of his grace and you receive it by faith. Just as if I were giving you a gift, I would put it in your hands. You would take it with your hands. Even so, the grace of God that brings salvation is something that we receive by faith. Our hands receive it. So then faith justifies. Not that God accepts the man because he believed, but because by faith he takes hold of what God gives. He takes hold of the grace, the gift of God, which is eternal life. And so Paul had received, by faith, had received this gift. And so had these Gentiles. They also had received this gift. Now God did not add a step For the Gentiles that was not required of the Jews. The Jews came to faith in Jesus Christ the same way that Gentiles do. They received the gift. That's it. And if if the Gentiles were required to take an extra step. And become like Jews. And submit to the Mosaic law specific to Jews. Then there would be an extra step there. An extra thing the Gentiles had to do. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a Gentile. I am thankful that there's not an extra step that I have to take that Jewish converts don't have to take. I'm thankful that we all come the same way, through the same door, through the same gateway, the same path, the same way, the same truth, the same life, I almost said wife, the same life, No man comes unto the Father, but by Jesus. This is God's plan for our salvation. So then faith justifies. Then notice what Paul says. For I, through the law, am dead. Verse 19 is what I'm reading. I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. So Paul is saying here that the law itself declares that that old Mosaic law no longer applies. The old Mosaic system no longer applies. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And here's why. Here's why. Jesus Christ in the gospel perfectly fulfilled all that the the law required so that Paul no longer is accepted for his law keeping. He is, he is accepted for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. His faith in Christ attaches him to Christ so that whatever happened to Christ happened to Paul. And that's how it goes for us. Because see, this is what the law does. The law gives you a long list of things that you're to do. Long list. In order to please God. And then you know what the law does? It shows you all the ways that you're failing. Points out your failures. Over and over and over again. Never offers a helping hand. But sits back like this. And watches you fail. And then points it out to you and then condemns you, condemns you for your failure. The law has no power to deliver a sinner from his sin at all. The only thing the law does is to bury you in your sin. The law condemned Jesus, not because Jesus did something wrong but the law condemned Jesus. The sins of mankind were placed on Jesus. And because he died on a cross and because the Mosaic law specifically said cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. Therefore, Jesus himself was cursed by the law. The law cursed Jesus, but the law could not maintain the charge against Jesus because Jesus was righteous and without sin. He bore our sins, he was crucified, and so the law cursed him. But the law's demands were also satisfied because Jesus died the death of a criminal. And then Jesus triumphed over death and over the law. He rose from the grave. He rose again. And this is the good news for us. Because we're not accepted for anything that we do. We are accepted for what Jesus did. We're accepted because what he did was so great and so righteous that he was able to spread it among all those who believe and give it to us. Our faith in Christ then removes the condemnation of the law. The law could not condemn him and therefore cannot condemn us. Law keeping is a frustration to us. And understand, I'm not saying, not arguing that we have no obligation to live a holy life. But I am saying that the frustration of law keeping is removed because the law demands perfection. And that's removed now we never quite live up to all the demands of the law and the law only, de- only condemns us for our failure. It never offers a helping hand. It never even commends our efforts. It never, the law never gives you a hand for doing your duty. Great job. The law never says that to you. Great job. You've been really good. The law never says that. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Jesus perfectly kept the law. And in doing so, he freed me from any obligation to the law. For I bear them record, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law to them that believe. I'm sorry, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone that believeth. So see this is the way our history is all wrapped up in the history of Jesus Christ. All intertwined with the history of Jesus Christ. As I said what he has done we have done through him. He perfectly kept the law and all of its requirements. And that righteousness of his has been imputed to us has been placed in our account, credited to us. We are declared righteous. It's an official declaration. God himself declares it, hands it down to us. By it, we are freed from the obligations that the law placed us under and frees us to live a life of devotion to God. Where before, we lived like slaves. To the law. Now we are free to please God. And this is the history of the believer. The believer is one then who has taken up his cross to follow Christ. Now there's some confusion on this kind of thing, and there are people who say that certain temptations and sins are the cross that you have to bear. But that's not true. The cross that Jesus ca- called you to bear. It's not the cross of your sins. The cross he called you to bear is his cross, his shame, his reproach, his death. Christ's cross has become our cross. Christ's reproach has become our reproach. And in this way, the life of Jesus Christ has become my life, has become the life of of the believer. The second thing I want to show you we're giving you the testimony of a resurrected believer, a resurrected man. The second thing I want to show you is his identity. See how he identifies himself. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live. In the flesh. I want you to notice that. Because there we see his identity. He is a man. He is a man. He is not anything other than a man. Notice what Paul says. And the life which I now live in the flesh. He's speaking here of his humanity. The earthly part of himself. He still has that flesh. He's still a fallen man. Just that one important thing has been done to him in his fallenness. He is redeemed. By the grace of God, the ruins of the fall are being repaired and his lost humanity is being restored. It's a lengthy job. One of the old Puritans said, God is no patcher. He doesn't come along and patch up What you tried to fix yourself. What you tried to repair yourself. The things that you did in order to repair the ruins have to be torn out as well. God tears down what we built. All the systems that we put in place in order to try to earn God's favor. He takes those away. God doesn't add on to them. He does not attempt to improve them even. He doesn't do that. He's not trying to improve what you are doing. In order to save yourself. God tears those out. But understand. Your humanity came from God himself. He made you a man. And when he made you a man. He made you in his own image. So to be human. Is to be an image bearer of God. <clears throat> that then is the, the valuable part of yourself. The part of you that bears the image of God is a valuable part of you. And that is the part that God repairs. The part that He made and you ruined, He is restoring. He restores that image that we defaced. When Paul says, "...and the life which I now live in the flesh..." He is speaking of our ruined humanity. So it's Paul, the man who is speaking, Paul who lives in the flesh. Yet Christ lives in him. Jesus Christ lives in Paul. And this is not mental illness on the part of Paul. It's not a spiritual schizophrenia here. There are two persons. That's what Paul is saying. Two persons alive inside of himself. Paul and Jesus, those two. And this explains, by the way, what Paul said later on in Galatians, verse five, chapter five, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would, because there's this conflict inside of us. The Holy Spirit seeking to overcome us and rule in our hearts and lives. And our flesh rebelling against that and resisting the Holy Spirit. And that's what is happening in us. The inner conflict is the result of these two persons, yourself and Jesus Christ, seeking dominion in one body. But this is the difference here. The believer wants Jesus to live. Now, there are moments, there are moments when we resist. And when we fight against him, but ultimately we want Jesus to rule. We want Jesus to win. Believers don't just want Jesus to live in them in a corner or in a closet or limit Jesus to a room. But a believer wants Jesus to rule and reign, rule and reign in every part of ourselves. The believer takes up John the Baptist's motto. He must increase. I must decrease. And so he wants Christ to live in him so thoroughly that the Christ life that is in him will shine out through him. Spurgeon said that the Christian wants to be like a book printed in plain letters in which men might read a new edition of the life of Jesus Christ. A new edition of the life of Christ printed in your life. You as the book. He said that a Christian ought to be a living photograph of Jesus Christ. A striking likeness of his Lord. When my kids, when people run into my kids who know me and are just meeting my kids for the first time, they will, sometimes it drives my kids crazy. They'll say, you must be a Melanch. <laughs> and they... How do they know? Well, I I hate to break it to you, but you kind of look like me. And then when they see them do stuff, then they think it even more. You are just like your dad. That's what they'll say. And it drives my kids crazy. I understand. I drive my kids crazy. So why would that not? And for them to be like me? Oh, sweet revenge on my part. Sweet revenge. What, what a great thing. Listen, you are to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not preaching this as a duty to you. I'm telling you that this is the work of Christ living in you, that you begin more and more to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, when men look at him, they should, not, they should see not only what the Christian is, but what the Christian's master is. Is for he should be like his master. So the believer is a man. He's not God. And yet he is fully identified with Jesus, who is God. He lives, but it isn't himself alone that lives in his body anymore. It is Jesus Christ living through his body. Christ liveth in me. See, this crucified man has come out of the grave, a new man. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is now your identity. When we think of it this way, we shouldn't be surprised when people notice that there's something different about us. And we shouldn't be surprised that once people know that we're Christians, they don't want to be around us so much. They didn't love Jesus. Jesus said, if they loved me, they would love you. But of course, we know they didn't love him. And they don't love him. So they don't love you. We shouldn't be surprised that some would despise us, treat us badly, Seek to discredit us. They did all of that to Jesus. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. So then we should be more concerned if we fit in with the world and the world applauds us than if the world reproaches us. The third thing I want to show you about this man, we're talking about the testimony of the resurrected man. And we've talked about his history and we've talked about his identity. And then the third thing I want to show you are the principles that he lives by. Look what Paul says. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He lives in the flesh we can't escape that. The Bible doesn't deny that we, we live in the flesh. No creative exegesis can undo the fact that we are still flesh. We still have our flesh. We are still in the flesh. And No human solution can neutralize our flesh. There's not a formula I can give you. If there was, I would give it to you. That would forever neutralize or lock even away, lock away your flesh. It's not possible. You can't escape your flesh by joining a monastery and becoming a monk. Monks don't escape their flesh, and neither will you. You can't overcome your flesh by develop, developing very strict moral codes of the touch not, taste not, handle not variety. See, this is the point. Jesus did not come to deliver you from your humanity. He came to redeem your humanity. To make it into what he intended that it should be when he made man. So that it will fully display the image of Jesus Christ, which we were created to proclaim, to to show, to display in the world. Keep in mind that it was as a man that Jesus displayed the glory of God most vividly. Now, think about this. When Jesus became a man, when he took on human flesh, then he put on the fullest display of the glory of God. This is what the Bible tells us in John chapter one, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Bible is telling you that by becoming flesh, Jesus Christ was showing the world the way that man put on display the glory of God. And Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 goes a step further than that. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is, is, listen to this, the image of God should shine unto them. And then verse six says this, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You hear that? God put on the fullest display of his glory in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And God intends to keep on showing his glory through our humanity by redeeming us, redeeming us. So it's as men, not as monks, but as men. That we display God's glory in us. Sometimes Christians get some strange notions in their head. And one of those strange notions that seems to come up from time to time is the escapist notion. I'm just going to get away from everybody. I'm going to go live off by myself like a hermit somewhere. And then that way, I won't be influenced by the world at all. And people won't get me into sin. And then I can really live for God. No, no, that's not how God intended this. Salvation teaches us how to live life in the flesh rightly. Doesn't teach us how to Shed our flesh, but how to live in the flesh rightly, not by secluding ourselves, not by avoiding all contact with worldly things, but by putting on the whole armor of God and going to work for God. So what is this principle that the resurrected man lives by? The verse says the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He lives by faith. The just shall live by faith. But this is where so much of pop Christianity gets it wrong, because faith isn't sing- isn't seasoning we sprinkle on the casserole. I don't think I could say that five times fast. I just blew it saying it one time, slow. Faith is not the necklace we wear around our necks. It's not a good luck charm. Faith is the principle we live by. A working principle we carry with us into battle every day. A soldier goes into battle with certain principles in mind, right? Kill the enemy, don't get killed by the enemy. That's one of the major principles. I think uh, it was General George Patton who told his men one time, don't you dare go out there and give your life for your country. You go out there and make your opponent give his life for his country. That's the best principle that a soldier can live by, okay? Faith is the principle we live by. As we go to work, we see ourselves as crucified with Christ and yet alive. What a principle to live by! I'm crucified, so all the um, all the temptations and fiery darts of the wicked one that are set for me, I'm crucified. I'm dead to that. Dead to that. I'm alive to God. We see Christ living through us in whatever we do. We see ourselves advancing his kingdom by our work. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So I go to work and the work that I'm doing seems of no consequence. And yet I know that Christ is living through me. Living out his life through my life. And so what I'm doing is accomplishing something for Christ. Because I believe that by faith. Well, it's not because I believe it by faith. It's because God tells me that. And I believe it by faith. And so I go and I work and I work hard. And by means of my hard work, God is working his will in our world. He's led by the Spirit of God, which, by the way, proves that he's the Son of God, as Romans 8 tells us. This is the way that a crucified man lives. His risen Lord lives through him. So he hasn't discarded the law as unclean or worthless. He isn't a slave to the law. He doesn't see the law as the means for him to gain acceptance with God. Not necessary for that. But he does see himself as free to live a life of devotion to God. He lives according to the will of God. He follows the lead of the Spirit of God. And this is the principle that he lives by the faith of the Son of God. Now let's look at the last point here. His value. We've seen this testimony of the resurrected man. His history. We've seen his identity. We've seen his principles. Now I want you to see his value. And we should not overlook this because he is valuable. A resurrected man is a valuable man because the Bible identifies what it is that makes you valuable. You're dead, and yet you live, crucified, and yet alive. Crucified with Christ and risen with him. And all of this demonstrates that you are not worthless. You are not a miserable, worthless wretch. You are not. Sometimes Christians have a way of overstating this. But it's not entirely true. Yes, sometimes you might be disappointed in yourself. Sometimes you might feel guilt and shame and sorrow. You might face many disappointments in your life and failures and setbacks. And there might be many things, goals that you have in your life that you don't even come close to achieving. And many times you may feel that your labor is in vain. But Paul puts his finger here on the true value of the resurrected man. Do You know what it is? He is loved by God. That's what makes you valuable. That you are loved by God. At the end of that verse, Galatians 2.20, our text. When Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is putting on display the true value of the resurrected man. You can list all the things in your life that you think make you valuable. Make your list. Hold it up. Your list might be long and fill a whole notebook. It might be short and fill a postage stamp. But take that list, whatever it is, and hold it up. And then I'll show you this one thing. He loves you. And you can take that whole list, whether it fills notebooks or a postage stamp, and throw it away and burn it. It's worthless. That list is worthless. All the things that you think make you a value, worthless. Because I want to show you one thing that displays your true value. He loves you. He loves you. Compare that to all those things that you think give you value. There is no merit, no value greater than this, that God loves you. And God displayed not only how much he loves you, but how much he values you. In one great act of love, In all of history, one great act. Jesus Christ died to redeem you. Greatest display of love. And that display of love shows how much God values you. Right there. We typically measure the value of a thing by the price that we would be willing to pay for it in order to have it. You know, there's a reason why a Rolex watch, a real one, costs more than a Timex watch. And there's a reason why certain handbags cost more than others, why certain cars cost more than others. What gives it value? Is it the quality of the workmanship, the quality of the material, the things that you might be able to do with it? Well, God knows the value of all things perfectly. There have been times where I thought something was a lot more valuable than what it was. When I was in college working in the pawn shop, someone came in and pawned a gold necklace. And I gave them, I don't know how much money I gave for it. My boss walked in, saw the necklace, said, who paid for that? I knew by the tone in his voice that he was not happy. He picked it up and said, fake, this is fake gold right here. It was absolutely worthless. I overestimated the value of it. God never ever overestimates the value of anything. And God does not create fictitious values. You know, there is this thing of fictitious value today. There are these things I think they're called NFTs or non-fungible tokens that they have now where you can buy a non-fungible token and you have a theoretical share in some great work of art. You don't actually own the work of art. You never will actually own all the work of that work of art. But, you know, you own like a theoretical piece of it. It's really worth nothing at all. But you can pay lots of money to have it. God doesn't create fictions with that. God gives real estimations of real value and the thing that God says is more valuable than anything else is you as a person because he made you to bear the image of God. You defaced it, you ruined it by your sin but he says, I value that so much that I'll send my son, Jesus Christ, to die your death so that you can be redeemed. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You aren't resurrected because you're especially good or because you're especially valuable. Your value isn't found in anything that you do, in any talent that you have, in any ability that you have. Your value is found in the image of God that was placed in you when God made you. You ruined that image. You assaulted it by your sin. But God places such a high value on that image, his own image, that he determined to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die your death in your place, to redeem you with his blood. And he invites you to participate in the death, burial and resurrection yourself, to be crucified with Christ so that you also might live, yet not you alone, but Christ Christ living in you. The life of the risen man is a life of contrast. He's crucified, yet he lives. He's dead to the law, alive to God. He's free from the law's condemnation, yet obedient to Christ's will. He lives in the flesh, but he lives by faith, not by his flesh. His life is fully the life of a man, and yet Christ lives in him. Two persons in one body and one new man emerging. If you have come to Christ in faith and repentance, this is your unchanging, unchangeable reality. You are resurrected. You are a risen man. Buried with him by baptism into death. Risen with him. But if you have not come to Christ. By faith and repentance. Then you are called on to repent. And believe the gospel. Leave behind that old life. Crucify the old man with his affections and lusts. And come to Christ to be transformed. Made new. Christ living in you. This is my testimony. I hope that it's yours as well. And if it isn't, then I hope that it will.